Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show on the RFM. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. You can check us out on the NearFM podcast page for previous episodes of the show. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now in today's episode I'm going to be talking to John about the Bridges job in Dublin during the Civil War. John, what was the Bridges job? Well the Bridges job was the IRA, the anti-treaty IRA's term for an operation in August 1922 on the night of August the 5th and 6th when nearly 200 IRA men, went, probably 200 to 300 IRA men, went out to destroy all the bridges leading into Dublin, all the canal bridges, all the railway bridges, to dig trenches in the roads, to lay mines on the on the bridges, to blow them up. The idea was to completely isolate Dublin so that the pro-treaty government, which was trying to retake, or, or to take, I suppose, for the first time its territory to enforce the Anglo-Irish Treaty, so that it wouldn't be able to reinforce its garrisons in the rest of the country, so that it wouldn't be able to effectively govern the country. It, it was an attempt to sabotage the workings of government. To ruin the end of the story here, the plan was compromised. Uh, an intelligence officer was arrested the night before and out of 180 anti-treaty IRA fighters were arrested on the night. And by the end of the month, over 300 people had been arrested in the fallout from what the IRA called the Bridges job. So it's not a very well-known event, but in some respects, it was one of the turning points of the Irish Civil War. Now just to put it in context, what was the situation in Dublin at that time with the Civil War? Well, as most people will know, Cahill, the Civil War broke out in Dublin in the, on the 28th of June 1922 at the Four Courts, which had been occupied by a faction of the, of the IRA. Um, without going too deeply into the factional politics of it, because it's quite complicated, it was the culmination of six months of tension between pro-treaty elements and anti-treaty elements of the IRA, who had split formally in March of that year over the treaty. And the majority of the IRA um, was actually against the treaty, but a particularly militant faction led by Rory O'Connor and Liam Mellows and Joe McKelvey, was in the four courts. They'd occupied that, which was the centre of the legal system, as it was up until very recently in Ireland. They'd occupied several other posts around the city in defiance of the provisional government that had been set up to enforce the treaty. I'm not going to go into too deeply the politics of it, but the what they thought they were doing was they were upholding the government. They were trying to face down the government so that the government couldn't, as they saw it, give away the republic that they considered to have been declared in 1916 and confirmed in 1919. This is, of course, the theology of it, but what they considered the objectionable parts of the treaty, especially the oath of allegiance, Ireland's dominion to the British Empire, and the compromises in the treaty would be removed. And they were hoping to do this, peacefully is the wrong word, because they were armed and there were, there were plenty of shots exchanged in those six months in Dublin. By the end of June, things came to a head. There had been a treaty, there had been an election, which the pro-treaty side won. The British government pressured the Irish provisional government to enforce its authority. There was an exchange of, of kidnappings, if you like. There was an anti-treaty member, Leo Henderson, arrested. There was a pro-treaty officer, Ginger O'Connell, arrested. And the pro-treaty government finally took the step of borrowing British artillery, opening fire in the forecourts. And there was a week-long battle in Dublin, which the pro-treaty side won. They decisively routed out the anti-treaty fighters out of Dublin. There was um, roughly 60 to 70 people killed. It's roughly, roughly evenly divided, actually, between uh, anti-treaty, pro-treaty and civilians. It's roughly 20, 20 and 20. Several hundred more people wounded. There were 400 anti-treaty fighters, including very prominent ones, like members of the IRA executive, head of the IRA, Liam Mellows, Roy O'Connor, Joe McKelvey, arrested. Other prominent people, like Ernie O'Malley, were arrested but escaped, and Noel Lamas, actually. And Sean Lamas, in fact. 
the anti-treaty IRA had been well armed in Dublin. They'd been ensconced in positions. They were blown out of them basically by artillery, by their own lack of organisation as well, because they hadn't really been expecting an attack. And they were left afterwards basically in a very disorganised position in Dublin. Many, many of them were being arrested, including Oscar Trader, the head of the Dublin Brigade, survived the, the Battle of Dublin, but was arrested several weeks afterwards. Harry Boland, their chief director of intelligence, was arrested up in Scaries. He was shot in a hotel. He died shortly afterwards. The replacement director of intelligence was a Northern IRA officer whose name I forget right now, but he was arrested, uh, I think, the same day as Boland, and he was also shot dead. On, that was on Grafton Street. So the IRA was in a state of disarray in Dublin. Ernie O'Malley was sent back to Dublin by Liam Lynch to live a clandestine life tried to reorganise them. It wasn't a hands-on control he had. Frank Henderson was de facto head of the IRA Dublin Brigade. Uh, Ernie O'Malley was supposed to be passing on Liam Lynch's, Liam Lynch's the chief of staff of the anti-treaty IRA. Ernie O'Malley was supposed to be passing on his commands to Dublin, but there were general orders given. The IRA, anti-treaty IRA, what was left of them, including a lot, many very young men from the FINA and a lot of women from coming the man. The women were especially militant for some reason, anti-treatyites. A lot of them were acting on their own initiative in very small groups. Even by the time we're talking about by August, they'd only just managed to get three or four small active service units up and running. Some of them were living in the hills roof. Some of them were living clandestinely in the city with small arms dumps around the city. Often, you know, arms and messages were ferried back and forth by women and the actual shooting generally was done by men. And there were small scale attacks, but the bridge's job was an attempt to reassert the IRA in Dublin. It was an attempt at a propaganda coup and it was an attempt to disrupt the Free State Offensive, which was trying to take back the south of the country, especially Munster, especially Cork and Kerry. There would be seaborne landings to Cork and Kerry on this, in the same week. First Kerry and then Cork. Bridges job, the destruction of all the roads and bridges into Dublin was an attempt to disrupt that. So let's talk about the other player in the civil war that isn't really mentioned is the British government and the British military. What was the state of play with them in this period? The British military had about 6,000 troops uh, stationed in Dublin. Most of them were, were in the depot of the Phoenix Park, but they also held, still held various other barracks around Dublin controlled what's now Dublin Airport, what was then Collinstown Aerodrome, and they were actually training Free State pilots for the, the nascent Air Corps of the Free State or the Irish Army. They were still conducting patrols around the city, in some cases joint patrols with Irish government troops. They were trying not to get into contact with the anti-treatyites, although they played a limited part in the in the fighting in Dublin in, in June and July. Of course, they, they lent artillery to the Free State side. They may have even lent gunners, that's kind of disputed, but there, there is a claim there. There was one or two of them killed on Talbot Street in fighting in July near Amiens Street train station, what's now Connolly Station. They were involved in basically security in Dublin, in patrolling and so forth. Uh, they tried not to get in contact with the anti-treaty IRA. They tried to leave that to the provisional government troops. The IRA, by, by contrast, made an effort to try to attack them, to try to provoke them, so that the idea was that, you know, if it could be made into an Irish versus British thing, it might reunite the IRA, reunite Irish nationalists, or at least... You know, it would be a propaganda coup for them. It looked like they were still fighting the British and the Free Staters were, sorry to use that term, but that's their term, that the Free Staters would be backed up by the British and it would be a propaganda coup. But the British were probably the, still the strongest force in, in Dublin at the time, the strongest military force. But as you say there about propaganda coup and the public seeing the pro-Tariti forces being backed up by the British might result in them losing support. That didn't happen during the Four Courts. The Four Courts battle was really very confused. It was a lot more confused than we see in retrospect. Like, a lot of people didn't really know what was going on until it was over. There were cordons around the city centre to stop people getting in, to stop people getting hurt, but the papers were heavily censored for those few days. Uh, yeah, so a lot of people were confused, hadn't taken sides. I think most people were generally pro-treaty, though. And, I mean, especially in Dublin, the fact is that, including the anti-treaty uh, accounts, say... Over and over, the people were against this in the Civil War. There were no safe houses in the Civil War, except for Republican families. 
and so on and so forth. The, the public opinion tends to be pretty anti-guerrilla and pretty pro-treaty in Dublin, or at least pro-law and order. You know, I think the public had no appetite for the civil war. But having said that, if you look at anti-treaty propaganda, they did show again and again British guns bombarded the forecourts, British bullets shot Cahill Brewer, who was killed at the end of the, the battle in Dublin, of course. British bullets killed Harry Boland and so forth. Uh, it was a constant theme in anti-treaty propaganda, for sure. And it probably, you know, certainly among the kind of Republican constituency, it certainly had an effect. That's how they saw things. They don't seem to have been able to, to really sell this, though, to use kind of marketing language to the general public. Well, from a tactical point of view, the idea of destroying bridges, roads, tearing up railway tracks, was this used in other parts of Ireland? Yeah, I mean, it was one of the major anti-treaty tactics, like Liam Lynch... Right after, in fact, it was right after the bridges down, in fact, but right after the fall of Cork, Liam Lynch gave instructions to stop holding fixed positions, to break up into smaller groups, to fly in columns, to destroy infrastructure and railways, and that was one of his main orders. It was a general order of the IRA, and which was, again, this is kind of how the IRA worked, where general orders given out rather than, you know, micromanagement. And one of the general orders was to destroy railways, to destroy roads, to, to seize the mail, to disrupt the postal service, you know, to, to kind of... Um, to hack away at the sinews of government, if you like. So it, it was pretty much the staple of the anti-treaty campaign in the Civil War. They did much more burning and much more sabotage than they did open fighting. Did you get the impression when you were writing the article about the British job that uh, Dublin anti-treaty IRA viewed this as a final throw of the dice in Dublin? This would be a spectacular that might turn the tide of the war. So it's a good question, but the thing about this is that the people at the top of the IRA, the anti-treaty IRA, seem to have been really unrealistic throughout the Civil War. And Liam Lynch seems to have said, seems to have seen it in that way. It seems, to, as far as I can tell, it was Lynch who ordered it and it was passed down to O'Malley and then O'Malley to Henderson, like that, like I was saying, to these guys on the ground. Now, if you read what the low-level officers say, and they've a lot of them have left actually statements in the Bureau of Military History, they say stuff like it was an unrealistic thing. It was very risky because you put two or three hundred men out together, lightly armed, one of the strange things about the, the so-called bridges job was how badly armed the IRA men were. We know that they had better arms than this. They had explosives, they had rifles, they had machine guns, and they didn't use them. They were armed with pistols and axes and picks and stuff. They were intended not to confront enemy troops during the bridges job. They seemed to have thought it was unrealistic. It was a bad idea. It was like the Customs House Mark II from the previous year, in May 1921, when the IRA had lost nearly 100 men, five killed and 80-something taken prisoner, in burning the Customs House in the centre of Dublin against the British people knew of that example you know i think they were pretty unhappy that being ordered to do it but they went ahead and did it anyway did they see it as the last throw of the dice i think they just followed orders actually like i said i think that the leadership of the ira was particularly unrealistic both politically and and militarily but were officers on the ground able to speak to divisional supervisors communications like if you read in your mali's papers which have been published a guy resigned, for example, as head of one of the Dublin battalions uh, just before the bridges job. Said, you know, he'd done all he could and he didn't feel he could do any more. You do get them complaining back and forth. And O'Malley in particular, who's the head of the Eastern Division, is particularly unsympathetic. He's like, I, I don't recall the part of the IRA's rules where you get to question orders. He goes, just do it, kind of thing. He, he was pretty unsympathetic. But even when O'Malley is, is going up the chain of command, he's going, things are pretty hopeless in Dublin. He's saying that the people are against us, the media is against us. And they started attacking the media shortly after this, actually. You know, the the weapon situation is bad, morale is bad, so on and so forth. The enemy intelligence is good, they're arresting a lot of our people. I don't think he was pretty happy about it either, frankly. There was a certain amount of scope for complaints. Didn't People did resign. It's not like that they were 
which happens in a lot of insurgencies, that people who were faint-hearted were taken out and shot. That didn't happen. People just drifted out of, of activism. But a lot of them were, before, after, during the bridges job, were being uh, lifted, basically, were being interned by by National Army Intelligence, by the Criminal Investigation Department, the CID, which were plainclothes intelligence. Remember, they had lists of IRA people because they'd been on the same side very recently. The new safe houses and so forth, the new names, the new faces. So uh, there was a constant stream of them getting arrested. And they don't seem to have been shy about using certain tactics to extract information. On the pro-treaty side? Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> is the short version. No, they were they were pretty brutal, you know. I mean, civil war is not done with kid gloves, I guess, but uh, not so much really in August. It was it was after that, really, that you started to get most of the allegations of mistreatment. What would happen was, in the first six months of the civil war, if you were an anti-treaty sympathiser, unless you were a woman, because they, uh, they were taken elsewhere, they were taken to North Dublin Union. If you were a man and you were an anti-treaty sympathiser or fighter or activist, you were taken to Wellington Barracks, what's now Griffith Barracks, uh, you were interrogated, you were often beaten by the National Army Intelligence there, sometimes badly beaten. You were held in one of the cells in Wellington Barracks, it had been a prison before it was a barracks actually. Then you were put into a, a gym, or what had been the gym of Wellington Barracks, which housed about 250 people at a time. After they were finished interrogating you, you were sent off to, to either Mountjoy or Kilmainham prisons or to one of the internment camps in Newbridge or in, in Gormanston. There's lots and lots and lots of, of accounts of people being arrested for no reason, first of all, like in the Dole. For example, Jack White, the famous founder of the Citizen Army and anarchist, was, was arrested because he was walking down the street in company of a lawyer who represented anti-treaty guys. Both of them were arrested and thrown into Wellington. And they were pretty well-connected people. They had questions asked in the Dole about them. And Kevin O'Hagan said, sorry, state of war, you know, but I'll look into it. But they both said that people would be taken out of the cell in the middle of the night and beaten black and blue, and then they would be tossed back in the cells. Certainly in the first six months of the Civil War, there's lots and lots of allegations. Funny enough, well, Wellington was was not used afterwards, after Christmas. There were more handovers of, of British installations, but the also the allegations of, of mistreatment become less. Now, whether that's because censorship was more effective or because it happened less, I'm not sure. Well, if we get into the actual job itself, how does it begin? One of the strange things for me when you look at the, the so-called Bridges job is what connects Dublin strategically with the rest of Ireland? It's actually the west of the city. There's the railway bridge going over what's called the Strawberry Beds going over the River Liffey. There's the main roads leading out via Nace and Maynooth, and there's also a railway line going towards the southwest, going through Nace or past Nace. These are the main arteries then and now connecting Dublin with the rest of the country. And funnily enough, these were not included in the bridges job. The bridges job involved about two to three hundred, like I said, IRA activists. There was basically two jobs on the south side in the in the hills and the mountains. They seemed to have been trying to cut the bridges in the hills that would connect the city with the mountains, so the guerrillas couldn't be pursued. I suppose back in, into the hills. We know there were. There was at least two different columns living roof in the hills, probably, maybe more. On the north, there was a bigger job on the north side, in the area of the 1st and 2nd Dublin battalions, stretching from Rohini over as far as Blanchardstown. And they're basically a big arc of what was then countryside, and is now, of course, very built up, but it was then, was then countryside and villages. And they were going to destroy all the roads, the canals, the railways, in that part of North County Dublin. Like I, I mentioned before, most of the men were pretty lightly armed. They had revolvers and automatic pistols. They don't seem to have brought their heavy weaponry out for some reason. The orders were to blow up the bridges, to trench the roads, to destroy the transport and infrastructure. But what happened was, not far from where I'm from actually, in Rathfarnham, Liam Clark, who was an intelligence officer for the 4th Battalion, I think, the Southside Battalion, was captured the night before on, on Friday night. The bridges job so-called happened on Saturday night, Sunday morning. 
with the plans with all the maps of each bridge that was supposed to be destroyed. So if you can imagine, the Free State authorities couldn't have had a better idea. They had exactly where each and every job was going to take place. Pro-treaty troops drove out to Enniskerry and worked their way back over the mountains in a big sweep. They picked up as many as 100, maybe closer to 80, but a large number of, of anti-treatyites, including Noel Lamas, who I mentioned earlier, the brother of Sean Lamas, were picked up destroying bridges at Glencullen, at Glencree, um, at Killakee, if people know that area. But the, the roads leading into the mountains picked up more or less without firing a shot, or were firing very few shots. On the north side, there were both British and Free State troops. We alluded already to the fact that there was a big British military garrison still in Dublin. The British army, their help was obviously requested, helped with armoured cars and troops and machine guns. Well-armed columns of Free State and British troops went around this arc of destruction that there was supposed to be from Rohini over to Santry, to Cabra, to Blanchardstown, and in turn basically just rounded up large parties of, again, 70 to 80 anti-treatyites. There were firefights, there were two anti-treatyites wounded at Cabra Bridge where 30 IRA men were captured. But the IRA account says is that they pulled up and we had only pistols and they had armoured cars and rifles and machine guns and there wasn't an awful lot we could do. But one of the points I make in the article was that they still didn't fight very hard. I mean, if you look at the Customs House raid, which is in a kind of analogous, the previous year there were five IRA men killed and 80 captured. There was a number of British auxiliaries wounded. But there weren't any Free State wounded in the British job. You had 180, maybe even more captured uh, anti-treaty fighters captured and two wounded and not a single pro-treaty or British soldier even wounded. The combat performance of the IRA was very weak no matter what we look at it which says to me either these were very inexperienced men or and or their hearts really weren't in it as far as the civil war was concerned as far as this, this job was concerned. Because basically they were meekly marched off into, into captivity. That night just to kind of round things off, the active service units of the IRA did mount attacks all over Dublin, you know, shooting attacks on military posts. And there was a Free State soldier wounded and six civilians wounded. Civilians tended to suffer as a result of attacks in Dublin, but simply because there were so many of them around. Which tells me again also that the, the actual guerrillas, the actual fighters from the anti-treaty IRA in Dublin weren't used for the British job, or not many of them were. But it was, you know, it was a token gesture. Like the, the night was, was a disaster for the IRA in Dublin. You know, it essentially wiped out a lot of its its companies and its battalions uh, in the city. From your description and your article, it doesn't seem to be like many other operations during the War of Independence. There doesn't seem to be scouts at certain points along the roads to warn them if there was uh, patrols coming or anything like that. That's it seems to have been completely taken by surprise when the pro-treaty forces arrive. That's a good point, yeah. I think that's that's a valid point. It was pretty incompetent on the whole. I mean, the only thing I'd say was is that what this wasn't supposed to be a combat operation. It doesn't seem to have filtered back that, that the operation had been compromised, that this guy, Liam Clark, had been, had been arrested. But yeah, it was, you know, you're completely right. It was, from a military point of view, it was pretty, it was pretty slack. There weren't any scouts. There wasn't, a, you know, there weren't ambushes laid on the roads around. They were too lightly armed to resist any, any sort of uh, counterattack. So it's not the death knell, really, for um, the anti-treaty IRA in Dublin. You know... You don't need that many people to carry out a guerrilla campaign, especially an urban guerrilla campaign, where your your men are living clandestinely and stuff. Funny enough, it, it wasn't it wasn't the end. Like the anti-treaty IRA in Dublin, in terms of its its attacks, peaked in and around November, in Dublin, because they were they were as uh, strange as it sounds. There were plenty more. You know, mostly very very young recruits, male and female. They would um, attack uh, Free State and British actually patrols in the streets. They'd throw grenades, they'd fire revolver shots, they'd do sniping attacks with rifles and machine guns on barracks. In November, Wellington Barracks, which I mentioned, was which was the, the internment centre in Dublin, the holding centre, 
was attacked the way 18 pro treaty soldiers hit was one killed there should have been uh, uh, the marksmanship of the anti-treaty side being better there would have been a lot more killed you know there was an attack on Oriel House the, the CID headquarters in which there was you know a mine was, was detonated under, underneath it there was uh, two detectives killed but there was attempts to kill Richard Mulcahy the pro treaty army the national army chief of staff and so on and so forth I mean they, they reached a, a significant peak in, in uh, late December what really killed it I think was um, well the, the annual ongoing arrests which, which gradually crippled it Ernie O'Malley himself was picked up in November for example, uh, Frank Henderson was picked up in and around that time out of the IRA Dublin Brigade. The other thing that killed it is the uh, executions, which seems to have kind of knocked the stuffing out of them. There was around 220 people killed in Dublin in the Civil War. 60 to 70 of them were killed in the first week. After that, roughly another 100 were killed by the end of the 1922, mostly in the late autumn of 1922. And in the new year, there was only about maybe 30 to 40 killed. So... I might have got the number slightly wrong, but that's the ratio. It's it goes. There's a there's a lot of people killed at the start. There's a significant number killed in, in the the late nineteen twenty two, and then it's reduced to a very very low level by nineteen twenty three. Now, now by nineteen twenty three, I was looking through National Army intelligence files. By the end of the Civil War, the anti treaty IRA in Dublin is in a kind of pathetic position. Like for example, the Fourth Battalion, which is the weakest, has like, you know, ten men and eight guns, and the guns could have been like revolvers and shotguns. And even the strongest, which was, I think, the first battalion, had maybe 100 men on its books. Now, not fighters, but, you know, maybe maybe 10 rifles, something like that. By the end, they're in a position to do very little in Dublin. The bridge's job was a sucker punch for the IRA in Dublin. It showed they couldn't do very large operations. In terms of what you call state security, though, in terms of getting a situation where the IRA couldn't do any attacks in Dublin, funny enough, it, it wasn't the end. But does the government's response to the bridge's job remove the threat that vital infrastructure will be targeted in the future? No. In Dublin, yes, there, there wasn't any large-scale operations, but around the country, um, one point John Borgonovo was made down in Cork. Cork City was taken, I think, three or four days after the bridge's job, on August the 9th, I think, 1922. And after that, the IRA destroyed virtually all the bridges and roads in Cork. I mean, they dynamited the viaducts, big railway bridges leading across rivers. The same was done in Waterford. There was an enormous amount of destruction of infrastructure in, in the Irish Civil War. Much more violence, as I said, was committed on property than on people. Despite the disaster that was the bridge's job, no, it did not stop the, the destruction of infrastructure. What stopped it eventually was that there was a railway maintenance corps raised, which was basically armed railway workers, and there was armed huts or armed posts built all the way along railway lines crisscrossing the country. At an awful lot, at great expense, had to be gone into to, to protect the infrastructure. As I was saying about the anti-treaty guerrilla campaign, this was very gradually ground down by... By weight of numbers, I mean, the pro-treaty army grew to about 60,000, which by Irish standards is, is massive. Now, the British army, which I talked about in Dublin, left halfway through in December. But, you know, they recruited an awful lot of, of men and they managed to basically eventually win the civil war by, by weight of numbers and by grinding down the guerrilla campaign. Do we have an idea what the anti-treaty IRA activists outside of Dublin thought of the bridges job? I'm not sure that they would have been aware of it. They would have been much more aware at the time of the landings in Cork and Kerry. They probably would have disregarded the press reports, I, I'd imagine. I, I'm speculating here. Of, you know, a great coup, they probably would have just ignored them. But, I mean, they couldn't ignore the fact that the anti-treaty area had held, had held Cork, which was the second most important city, and that was gone almost without a fight, or with a very poor fight from the anti-treaty perspective. They'd lost County Kerry. But... For the time being, we're talking about August 1922, in some parts of the country, particularly in Munster, southern Munster and in the west, there was still a determination to, to carry on the fight. 
So how significant do you think the Bridges job was in the Civil War in Dublin and in the Civil War overall? The Bridges job, it's, you know, it's hard to tell because it didn't happen. I think it would have been a significant propaganda victory for the anti-treatyites. And had they been able to do it again, had they been able to destroy the really important roads and rails lines out of Dublin, it would have been a serious blow for the pro-treaty government. So that it didn't happen was, was significant. It was also a big propaganda and morale defeat for them because they lost so many men. As I said, they inflicted no casualties in the British job. So they lost nearly 200 men, didn't inflict a single casualty on the enemy. So it showed either, you know, the pro-treaty propaganda line would be that they were shocking cowards. They weren't people who hadn't fought the black and tans. And in Ernest Bloyd's words, they, they didn't put up a, a decent fight hardly anywhere. And, you know, and, and incidents like the British job sort of rammed this home. So it was a, it was a morale blow. And I think that was, in the end, its main significance. Now, John, I suppose one of the issues that's been in the news over the past week for people who are interested in history has been the government's plans to commemorate 1916, the 100th anniversary in 2016. They had a launch there in the GPO with Enda Kenny and Heather Humphreys, the new Minister for uh, for Culture and the Gwaeltacht. And it seems to have got a very interesting response. Yeah, well, at that particular night, it was it got mixed up with water, anti-water charges of people, I believe. Uh, speaking personally, I, I I mean I just saw the video for Ireland twenty sixteen. Ireland inspires. Ireland, Ireland inspires hashtag. If if, yeah. if anyone feels they want to look it up on Twitter, I was pretty underwhelmed. Yeah. I must say, personally speaking, there was first of all there was virtually nothing about the rising. There was a very quick screenshot of the proclamation, followed by Brian O'Driscoll and uh, you know the Queen of England and David Cameron, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness got in there with the word reconcile, so which was I thought a bit North Korean, you know. Bit of a subliminal message there. I put it up on the Irish Story Facebook page and, and somebody said, this isn't a commemoration, this is a tourist video. And I think that's about the size of it. It looked remarkably like a tourist video. Or even more so uh, an IDA investment video. Um, there was overhead shots of Grafton Street with icons appearing above people's heads of multinational corporations that invested in Ireland, such as Google and Twitter and companies like that. And shots of fireworks and stuff. But for somebody who was unaware of 1916, you would be none the wiser after watching that video of why we were commemorating the 100th <laughs> anniversary of it. Yeah, to be honest with you, um, I, I suspect the people involved in Ireland 2016 don't have much idea of why we're commemorating it either, by the looks of it. I mean, it, to me, what it said was that, I mean, they put first of all, they put a marketing executive at the head of the committee. There aren't history people involved. But it was really uh, pretty value-free stuff. To me, it said we have to commemorate this, but we're really what Ireland is about now is making money and being nice to everybody, being friends with everybody. So we're doing this purely as a token gesture to avoid it being taken over by other people, but in reality by Sinn Féin. I thought there was very little conviction behind it, was the, the principal thing. Well, even as you say there, with one of the first shots being the Queen and David Cameron placing it, with, what was it, Easter lilies or poppies or whatever, I think. Well, like, there's the Queen at the at the Garden of Remembrance in Dublin with the yeah. visit. And then there's David Cameron and, and I think Enda Kenny Lee laying poppies on the memorial over in, in France, the Irish memorial yeah. there. You know, and the word reconcile in, in bold, in bold yes, letters. But, but what are they reconciling? Well, supposedly, you know? yeah, well, I, I have a whole bee in my bonnet about this as well. But I mean, supposedly we've been at war with Britain for 100 years and now we're being reconciled, which is which is really a fiction. It's, it's complete mm -hmm. nonsense. But, but this is the official line, you know, that the... Queen's visit was a massive transformative event, which I certainly didn't feel. That's the official narrative, that we were hostile to Britain, we were a hostile power, but now we're reconciled, which is 
for someone who takes, you know, takes an interest in, in the actual history of the Irish state, that's simply not true at all. The truth is that the Irish state from its foundation was a junior partner of Britain, has always been, despite the one real assertion of its independence, which was not joining the Second World War. Even then, it was a friendly power to Britain, has always been. And during the Troubles in, in Northern Ireland, the Irish government uh, was in an uncomfortable position of trying to find a middle way. But certainly, and despite what some unionists will tell you, the Irish government tried to find a security solution as well with the with the British government, while not alienating the nationalist community in the north. But I mean, it certainly wasn't a case where Ireland was antagonistic. The Irish state was antagonistic <laughs> to Britain and needed to be reconciled, I don't think. What the Queen's visit and all that stuff did was bring into line the reality, the official narrative into line with the reality, I think. Well, I think what was worrying for me is that all this talk about removing history as a core subject from the junior cert was perfectly summed up by that video. History-free history. But history is not important, you know, only only marketing is important. This is the world we live in now. For so many 1916 commemorations over the past century, the state was not involved, particularly during the Troubles, and for a variety of different reasons. Does this really make the argument that the less the state is involved in 2016, the better? Should it be left up to individual um, history groups, community organisations to organise lectures, to organise meetings, commemorations in their own areas, rather than have government ministers appear and give meaningless speeches? Yeah, I mean, I've got a number of thoughts on this. Number one, I don't really like the idea of commemoration all that much because... Commemoration is not the same as understanding. Commemoration is about, you know, forming an official version that everybody's supposed to subscribe to, which I don't think, you know, I don't think you should do in a, in a free society. We can talk a lot about the meaning of 1916 and what it should mean, but I think the more important thing, just as individuals, is that we understand it, you know, and that we know more about it. You know, this kind of stuff is not going to help anybody understand it, good or bad. So I personally would have very little interest in, in the state commemoration. I think the state sort of has to have one, though, more or less, but I, I certainly wouldn't be very interested in it myself. And I think that the much more constructive things might be done by independent people. I'm thinking of the uh, lockout commemorations last year. That the Well, that was a bad portent from my point of view. Yeah. I mean, you know, they they reenacted the, the riot on Labour's Bloody Sunday in August 1913, where the Dublin Metropolitan Police, you know, batten charged the crowd. But the reenactment of it was sealed off by Gardaí, including plainclothes, like intelligence Gardaí detectives, who were questioning people. Uh, there was a barrier around which you had to go through, like you were searched if you wanted to watch it. There were, you know, private stewards stopping you watching from certain angles. You know, it certainly wasn't about public participation. I mean, there was, you know, there was an official gallery watching the, the recreation of the Baton Church. It was the opposite of, of what I, you know, what I'd like to see, to be honest. Well, the thing that does uh, happen... If 1916 is like that, then I, I'd say it'll be ten times worse is in that, terms of exclusion of the general public. Yeah. But, but I'm thinking of, of groups like the history groups in East Wall and Smithfield and Stony Batter were organising their own talks and commemorations during uh, the anniversary of the, the lockout. And they seem far more interesting and far more participatory than anything the state got involved in. I think that's totally correct, yeah. I couldn't agree more. So could that become a template for 2016? I think that would be a great idea because the great advantage that groups like that have is that there doesn't have to be an official version. People can talk about what happened and discuss different opinions. Um, I I think that would be a really great idea. I encourage anybody who's interested to get involved. I think, though, you know, another issue that comes up 
is we have discussed this here in the history show before but what is the meaning of 1916 what should we take from it you know as yeah. well as the actual event how should we see it in, in hindsight you know if you go back to the 1966 as you you've written about the tone was very much that they were heroes and they founded the Irish nation not alone the Irish state they redeemed the Irish nation but of course in the 70s that became incredibly problematic for the state because of the troubles the parade was cancelled I mean there was a riot on O'Connell Street when the provisional IRA supporters provisional Sinn Féin supporters tried to have a parade in 76 well you know the 75th anniversary was 1991 yeah and there was there wasn't any official events but there was some kind of really low-key state events because that was at a time when the troubles was really dragging on and the Almost the dominant message then was 1916 was kind of embarrassing or regrettable, you know, that it was unmandated, that it was anti-democratic, that it was violent, you know, all the things people associated at that time with the with the provisional IRA and their campaign in, in the north of Ireland. Well, I don't know, what do you think, what should we take from 1916? If, if we can take lessons from history at all, but if we can, what should we take from 1916? It's hard to say, really. Like, some people will see it as the founding of the state, the founding myth of the state, Whereas other people would say that the state that we live in now does not in any way live up to the ideals of the signatories of the proclamation. And, you know, as we were saying there about the state being involved in the first place with the commemoration, is it more out of embarrassment that if they don't do it, they'll look bad or that they can keep an eye on things, that it can't get too nationalistic or... It won't fit into the narratives that they have now at the moment. But I can't see uh, primary school children spending a lot of time talking about the seven signatories or mm. looking at pictures or anything like that. I think it just will, will, will pass by without a lot of notice from official sources. The 2016 thing shows me, though, is that, coming back to what I said earlier, the people they have involved, marketing people, things like that, they really just don't understand, not alone the historical event, but don't understand history at all. And why history is important. Coming back to 1916 though and, and what it means, I'd be against the idea that 1916 is the benchmark by which you have to judge everything. You know, the 1916 proclamation is just a proclamation at the start of a rebellion. 1916, the rising itself was a sort of propaganda event to show that they were serious, they were brave people. I think you can't quite escape from that, you know, the bravery of it. The I hesitate to use the word the heroism of it. But I mean, the idea that the signatories, had they lived, would have been some sort of secular saints, that everything would have been okay, is, is simple nonsense. I think in 1916, it, because of its effects, because of the drama of the event, is an incredibly important event. Mm-hmm. And because of the importance placed on it later as well, the meaning that was invested in it is an incredibly important event. And I'd love to see something which celebrates how it's been important for the last hundred years and shows also the suffering that it caused as it happened and shows that not everybody supported it. I'd love to see that like an inclusive discussion. I don't think we're going to get any of that. If we get if we get some of that, it'll be the negative stuff, I think. Mm. I don't think we'll get an appreciation of, of the people as they were at the time we made the rebellion. I'd like to see a 1916 commemoration where we were able to discuss what happened, to discuss the people, and to, to an extent that it was okay to celebrate the people who made 1916. I understand people's concerns about viol- the use of violence, the use of... Uh, you know, let's say, revolutionary vanguardism, to use the, the leftist term. I understand those concerns. I, I think, you know, all voices should be heard here. As Chairman Mao said, since I'm mixing my Marxist-Leninist, let a thousand flowers bloom. <laughs> and that's what I'd like to see in 2016. I think that's the case. Like, you want to put things in the widest context possible. And come from a history point of view, the more people who are aware of 
what Ireland and Dublin was like in 1916. So that includes talking about the Somme, that includes talking about the First World War. Yeah, uh, just talking about the slums, the people that looted the slums. Yes. Port the, Gates just had an article on that. Sorry, the people from the slums who looted the shops in 1916. Yeah. Putting that in a further context, like um, that, without a certain amount of looting, there would have been starvation in the city yeah. during 1916. The difficulty of getting food supplies, coal into the city at that stage, and people were genuinely without food mm. uh, in the latter few days of the um, the rising. We've always already seen the first blows being struck there by John Bruton, yeah. who's who's written several articles. He's been on TV shows and radio shows talking about nineteen sixteen. The problem that I have is that it's the same narrative over and over again from John Bruton, no matter who he's debating. Mm. He was debating a, a friend of the show there, Brian Hanley, mm. on TV3, and, and he doesn't seem to take on any of the points that people make uh, in response to it. Mm. And this idea of why commemorate 1916 um, instead of commemorating the passing of the uh, Third Home Rule Bill. Yeah. Now, you know, we can, we can talk about that too, mm. but I, th- I think it would be very difficult for somebody to make a case for the signatories in 1916 to make a case for the rising in and of itself with the background of the past 30 or 40 years and the way it's been marginalised within the media and academia the revisionist argument against 1916 and it's not that we shouldn't be having those discussions but it will be interesting to see if there will be a parity between people who would have a very positive view of 1916 John Bruton uh, and uh, you know the so-called revisionist school, particularly people in the you know in the media and in politics rather than historians, is it's very much still fighting the battles of the eighties and nineties. You know they're basically condemning the the provisional IRA by other means. Funnily enough, there is a certain element of the Republican movement, the Sinn Fein of today, which say that oh the rising was very cruel and the war of independence was very cruel, but you have to be cruel. You know we were cruel as well, but you have to be kind of thing. So some of them some kind of getting bored in a strange way as well, now and again. I I find the stuff about the Third Home Rule Bill and stuff, you know, it's an interesting discussion to have, but, it, you know, anybody who knows the history knows that it doesn't really stand up to, to scrutiny. I mean, the Third Home Rule Bill simply was not Irish independence. You know, it was limited home rule. It was like devolution that Northern Ireland has today. And, of course, it didn't happen. So the idea that you'd celebrate that as the culmination of Irish independence is simply wrong. Well, it um, was completely superseded by events during just, the First it, World War. Yeah, it simply didn't happen, you know, yeah. is, the, is the key. You know, what strikes me about the commemoration, though, and um, what makes me uncomfortable is by commemorating something officially, by saying this is the official line, you have to tell people what your values are. And the truth is that the Irish state doesn't <laughs> gave up on having values a while ago. You know, so it's, it's really all about making money now. And, and, okay, and being, you know, and governing the country rationally beyond that. We gave up ideology in Ireland like the most of the rest of the Western world did a while ago. And this is one of the reasons why it makes people so uncomfortable. Well, this is the thing. I think it will be hard to predict, in a way, in what state the country will be in two years' time, or one and a half years' time at this stage. If Easter 2016 was now, mm. I would be very, very nervous as a government holding any big event in O'Connell Street mm. uh, with the anger from the Watch Chargers campaign. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things, again, if we talk about the importance that's been placed on 1916 subsequently, it's because it's a barometer of what the nation should be. Like, mm. 1916 is an idealised form of what the nation should be. It should be equal, it should be fair, it should be progressive, so forth. 
I, it's really interesting, even in recent years, that during the years of the so-called Celtic Tiger, the boom, uh, people have said, well, the leaders of 1916 are justified because look at us now, we're rich, we're successful. And during the crash, suddenly people started to say, the men of 1916, they died for nothing. It was even in the Irish mm -hmm. Times, you know, not a newspaper either in 1916 or today that's notable for its support of armed republicanism. But, you know, they, they had a headline, did they die for this? Did the men of 1916 die for to bail out the banks or to bring in the IMF? And I suspect, I strongly suspect, if the economy continues to recover, that Enda Kenny and the, or whoever's in government's line will be, the men of 1916 will be proud of us. If you stand back from it a little bit, that's kind of funny, that it always gets co-opted for what people want to believe about the country today. But vice versa, you also have this thing with disbelief that the men of 1916 were not concerned with material things, that they had a... <laughs> uh, a spiritual desire for a better Ireland outside of money and success and finance so yeah. some people were comparing alternatively the Celtic Tiger with you know the higher ideals that the, sure. the men of 1916 had and how we'd failed those ideals but the other thing as well is the fundamental question is the the state the Republic of Ireland the inheritor of the Republic of Ireland that was founded during 1916 yeah, or I mean, has that or has that Republic of Ireland ever come to pass? Well, you know, you you what you're getting into there is a multiple different ways of defining what that should mean. So we started the show today talking about the Civil War, which was of course the first big contradiction in this. Now the Republic declared in 1916, according to the Republican theology, which I don't know how many people even subscribe to this anymore, but it was confirmed in 1918 by the People's Vote, by the declaration of the Dáil government in 1919 that it was usurped illegally in 1921 by the treaty and that the republic has never existed you know because the state's partitioned because it wasn't properly independent so on and so forth it's not very controversial to say that that's a pretty unrealistic way of looking at it yeah. you know partition being a fact we have to deal with and nobody ever did the state was never going to be perfect but you know we have to deal with that in concrete ways rather than in, in kind of idealized ways so is the republic of today the same as the republic declared in 1916 is sort of a metaphysical question. Though. Yeah. Is, it goes Does back, it matter? No, I mean, it's not yeah. a real question anyway. It goes back yeah. to the idea of 1916 as, as you know, the, the founding myth, as the embodiment of our values, and you can invest whatever values you want in it. So there's no answer to that question. Like I said, the debate about 1916 is important in that way, and people should be allowed to have that debate. But I'm not sure there's a, you know, there's a definitive answer. I'm not sure anyone can pipe up and say, well, this isn't the Republic or this is, and I found the document which shows it. There are people who get into this, this discussion, of course. But I think it's, it's an unreal argument. There's been a couple of things so far, I think, there was, uh, we're in the process of, of seeing 16 books yeah. written about 16 executed men. I don't know how many they're up to now, maybe 8, 9, 10, probably. They're, they're turning them out? Yeah. There are figures among those those 16 that wouldn't be well known, even among you know people with interest in history, some of the minor figures. Yeah. Will people start to take an interest in this, particularly in their home areas? The decade of centenary, so-called, has, has so far been a mixed bag. I mean, there's an awful lot more history being, Irish history being published. Mm. Not some of it good, some of it not so good. But I think certainly stuff like that, yeah, it does move the historical understanding on. And the fact that so many new files have been opened from the Bureau of Military History to the pension files, so on and so forth, is certainly a positive thing, yeah. I think I, I must say, like, the, I haven't read the 16 Lives, but I think that's a good, it's a good initiative. Well, far more important, would you say, than the, the likes of the launch and the GPO, mm with uh, the corporate videos but I suppose there's, there's also the, the opportunity and this has been going on for, for years with people giving tours but people who live in the vicinity of some of the sites involved in 1916 people who live near the St James's Hospital or people who live near 
Poland Mills, mm. really seeing what went on. You know, if we talk about for a second about the general public's understanding of what happened, I think the public in Dublin and probably elsewhere in Ireland doesn't understand how how much of the city was taken up by the rising, how much of it was affected. Mm. People think it was only the GPO on Connell Street, mm. whereas that was only one of five or six areas where there was intense fighting in, in the five days of the rising. Or even Wexford and North Dublin, Meath. And, and of course there were risings also in Wexford yeah. and Galway, yeah, which people don't know about. I think one of the things that spreading commemoration of the rising out and looking at the different sites will tell people is some more of the ambiguities of the actual event. Like, for example, what's now St. James's Hospital was said Dublin Union at the time was a hospital, was a workhouse. And the idea to take that over as, as insurgents was pretty morally questionable. And likewise, Jacob's factory, where they had the building been destroyed, it wasn't, but had, they, had it been destroyed in the fighting, you know, they would have put several thousand people out of work. Those were some of the places where a lot of clashes between the volunteers, the insurgents and the civilians happened. So without getting too much into the event, I think you get a much more clear and realistic picture of, of the actual rising as it was by looking at these. And the other place where people probably don't know about is North King Street, Dorset Street area, where there was not only really intense, vicious fighting, but there was also a massacre of civilians by the British Army in 1916. And I, I want to see all of those things talked about, both the clashes with the volunteers and civilians where volunteers and citizen army people shot dead civilians in the rising and massacre civilians by the British army. I want to see all those things talked about and not a simple thing of the rising was heroic or the rising was cowardly, stupidity, blood sacrifice, blah, blah. I want to see everything talked about when we, when we talk about the rising. But can we really discuss these things, warts and all? Because one of the things that strikes me is that this decade of commemorations, we're talking about a period where Ireland wasn't partitioned. So stuff that happened in any part of Ireland affected all of Ireland, really. And in 2012, we had the 100th anniversary of the Ulster Solemn League and Covenant, the next year the founding of the, the UVF. UVF yeah. And you'd be hard-pressed to know that happened from looking at the Dublin media or anything like that, even though these these were fundamental things, mm. fundamental issues involved in the, the home rule crisis. I think in the north, the anniversary of the Ulster Covenant was a big deal, though. Yes, but shouldn't that really have been a, something that was marked in all of Ireland? Not celebrated, but, but commemorated. About, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, BBC did a really good documentary on the Ulster Covenant. There wasn't much on RTE, as I recall, no. to be honest. Yeah, no, we should. We really, really should. And I mean, talking about the North, I think it's a good idea to finish on the North. There is a school of thought which blames the 1966 50th commemoration of the Rising for the outbreak of the Troubles two or three years later, depending on how you count it. By some count, the first killings of the Troubles happened in 66 with the, the UVF, the new UVF. Yeah. Killed a Catholic barman for some reason. I'm not sure I really go for that, that 1966 caused the Troubles. I don't, in fact, I don't go for that. But I mean, do, what do you think about the, the 2016 in the North? Do you think it's going to affect the, the delicate sectarian balance up there? I don't know. I think there will be a lot of commemorations going on in the North in 2016 because you also have the Psalm as well. Of course, which is the sort of blood sacrifice for loyalists, right, for unionists in some ways. Yeah, and and the problem with that really is that there would have been a, an awful lot of nationalists who fought and died in the First World War during 1916 at places like the Somme. Of course, um, and I mean, and the truth is that there were Irish nationalist Catholic soldiers who fought against the Rising in Dublin. Yes, I mean, let's be honest. In the north of Ireland in 2016, there will be the Somme for unionists and there will be the Rising for nationalists. Yeah, and I, I think the problem would be if it becomes very party political, that if the 2016 commemoration in Belfast becomes the property of Sinn Féin, mm. rather than, you know, the property of everybody. The thing is, you said there about the perception that everyone, all the insurgents in 1916 were fighting British soldiers, so therefore they were fighting British 
mm. soldiers rather than um, Irishmen and Irish regiments. Yeah, I Which, think yeah. especially it, in the first few days they yeah. they did yeah before the the big influx of of regiments like the Sherwood Foresters. I, I think it'd be interesting now because in nineteen sixty six you had this idea that this was the most ideal version of Irish manhood, Irish womanhood, that fought for the highest ideals. And not that it wasn't questioned, I think that the narrative of the commemorations didn't challenge that. And maybe, maybe it shouldn't have been challenged. Maybe we're being too far too cynical mm. now looking back at it. But it was a less cynical time. You have pageants in, in Crow Park. You have local commemorations all over the country very well attended. You have the first real growth in television and Telefish Aaron really covers it very, very well and spends an awful lot of time on it. So I don't know, how, how does uh, a cynical, how will a cynical 2016 Ireland view it? I guess as two cynical history history commentators, you're just going to have to wait and see, no? Yeah, it should be interesting. should be very interesting. But there you go. Uh, let us know your views. You can contact us on Facebook, the Irish History Show page. Contact us on Twitter. Check out previous episodes of the show on the Near FM podcast page. Just go to the Irish History Show. Thank you very much for myself, Carl Brown, and my co-presenter, John Dorney.